Hi, you're listening to GCSE, Revision with Jazz and it's her cousin Harley. It didn't take much time to convince her to let me in, let me do the intro. All I had to do was bust out the puppy eyes. Anyway, today Jazz will take you through the events of Macbeth all in one episode. So enjoy while I I have fun on the trampoline. Okay, so as you heard from my cousin, I am doing... I don't know why I'm talking in this voice. This is not how I normally talk. This is how I normally talk. Okay, so as you heard... From the intro, thanks to my cousin who did have a little bit of difficulty talking, so I had to write up her script for her. She was like GCSE because she couldn't say it in all, all in one go. So that's why it kind of sounds like a robot. But she did beg me, so I had to say yes. At this point, it's not even my podcast anymore. It's my brother and my cousin's podcast because they keep wanting to do the intros for some reason. Um, so if this is the first episode you are watching of me, I am. I normally do the outros and the intros. Normally I go, hi, you're some to DCSE Revision with Jazz and it's me, Jazz. Normally I do that, but my cousins and my brother have been on this kind of like little rampage on my podcast episode. So ignore that. It does get a bit more normal. So like I said, I keep backtracking on myself and keep going into loops, but we are doing a timeline of the events of Macbeth. It's going to be maybe 20 minutes, 15 minutes maybe around that mark and I'm just gonna go through each scene not in too much detail but in a little bit of detail and this might be good to watch um after or before I do you listen to the um oh, I can't speak now before after you listen to the analyzing series I have on my podcast channel uh if you watch it before it'll be a good way to get into the um Macbeth kind of story as a little as a little introduction and if you watch it after it will be really good to reinforce the events and if you're really really cool not cool really smart or really kind of into getting good grades you can watch it before and after because that would be really good actually so let's go act one scene one so this is where we first meet the three witches it uses pathetic fallacy as thunder and lightning to create a tense and unsettled atmosphere. It creates a dark and ominous tone for the rest of the play. In this scene, Shakespeare uses stereotypical supernatural behaviour, which confirms to the audience that these are supernatural creatures. And at the time that Shakespeare wrote this play, there was a heavy belief of witchcraft, which was widespread in the Jacobian period. And so the understand the student, the audience would be able to understand their evil roles and the their presence creates. Um, an example of a stereotypical supernatural behaviour is Shakespeare references the witches' familiars, Grey Malkin, Paddock and Anon, which makes it clear to the Jacobian audience the powerful role these witches play. Then Act 1, Scene 2 is a scene with Duncan, um, who is the king and his um, thanes, if you could say, uh, and it's there in the, they're in the war scene. And they meet a wounded and bloody captain and they ask, Duncan asks the captain, how is the war going on? The very fact that he's asking a captain of what's happening in the war, it shows that he's far removed from the battle. And the, the question the audiences have is how tactical is Duncan if he relies completely on the strength of soldiers to win the war? And it kind of shows him as an ineffective king as he keeps his distance from the war uh, and we question his ability to be a strong leader as the battles um, are being fought by other people. Then the the captain talks about Macbeth, he's brave, he uh, has brandished steel, he unseamed um, somebody from the nave to the chops, so he's obviously making it clear that Macbeth is desensitised to violence, so later on his private battle to go through with murder is not to do with violence or gore, but an internal conflict to wrestle with the morality of his actions. Also, it shows that the concept of honour was very important in the 11th century, so he resembles the perfect soldier. As seen in battle, he is brave and his skill is really good, so he's a really good soldier. Um, the metaphor smoked with, with 
bloody execution like Valor's minion carved out of the passage. Um, illustrates the speed of Macbeth's sword. Um, he is just outstanding as a soldier and he's flaunting his savagery and brutality to warn others not to cross him. Uh, and that is pretty much all for Act 1, Scene 2. Act 1, Scene 3. Oh, sorry. In Act 1, Scene 2, we learn that Thane of Cawdor is um, a traitor. And it's irony because it's foreshadowing that Macbeth will be a traitor because he gets a title of Thane of Cawdor later on. Act 1, Scene 3, we go back to the witches. Again, there's thunder reinforcing the pathetic fallacy. And basically, they're just telling the audience what have they been up to. The second witch says killing swine. So these terrible actions demonstrated here shows that the evil witches are capable of evil deeds. Um, and they believed in those times that if a pig was found dead, it was the work of a witch. So Shakespeare's reaffirming the audience of their beliefs. Um, and that's it for Act 1, Scene 2. There's not really much after that. Then, act, act 1, Scene 3, sorry. Never mind, sorry, just forget what I said about Act 1, Scene 3. There is more. After they talk about what they've done with each other, the the he hero at this point, Macbeth and Banquo, the tragic hero, enter, and Macbeth says, so far affair, a day I've not seen. So, again, Shakespeare uses weather to signify approaching disturbances, and this first line of Macbeth echoes the witch's own words, um, far as fair is fair and far as fair. So it shows that the witches are already having an influence on him before he's even met them. And um, he's already confused and unable to see clarity in the environment. Then um, Macbeth and Banquo are faced with their first set of prophecies. All hail Macbeth, hail to thee, Thane of Glams. All hail Macbeth, hail to thee, Thane of Cawdor. And all hail Macbeth, that shall be king hereafter. So in the 16th century, it was believed that the devil was the in internal thoughts. So if a person had bad thoughts, and if they acted on it, they were dealing with the devil. In Macbeth's case, he indulges in the fantasy of being king, and later acts on his thoughts, so has been tempted by the devil. Um, these predictions are clear and decisive, therefore Macbeth has an immediate understanding of what the witches are saying. Um, and they're vague enough that Macbeth begins to second-guess himself, fulfilling the prophecies. And the witches don't actually tell him to murder Duncan, they said that you will be king hereafter. So, their lack of time scale, like saying when he will be king, and Macbeth's temptation and his hamasha, which is his um, flaw that leads to his downfall, which is ambition, um, means that they're guiding him to his future actions and therefore destruction. Then Banquo, hearing these prophecies, says, if you are so... Um, otherworldly tell me if you can look into the seeds of time and say which grain will grow and which one will not speak then to me who neither beg nor fear your favours nor hate so he's basically asking tell me my fate so unlike Macbeth Banquo is suspicious and questions the witches and their tensions he has rational logic um and then his prophecies are lesser than Macbeth and greater not so happy yet much happier thou shalt be get kings though thou art be none so all hail Macbeth and Banquo so Basically, lesser than Macbeth and greater means that he will not rise as far up the hierarchy as Macbeth, but he will never see his reputation sink as low as Macbeth's. Not so happy yet much happier. He'll be happy that he... He's not so happy because he will die by the hands of Macbeth later on, but he will be happier because um, he would not face the same psychological torment that Macbeth goes through as a result of his like conflicting emotions. Of killing the king or not. Then the third witch says, Thou shalt get kings, though thou be none. So it's interesting that the witches don't reveal Banquo's prophecies until we ask them to do so. In showing an interest in what the witches foretell, it could be argued that Banquo also has a darker side to character. He seems to be a braver soldier and ruthless a fighter as Macbeth. When we hear the two men described in the captain's speech, he is able to contain his potential ambition and desires, unlike Macbeth, and so is able to avoid. Um, situations that Macbeth had to go through. Then the witches vanish and then they talk about their prophecies and Macbeth's like, your children shall be kings. So he's already uh, preoccupied by the nature of the prophecies and the the fact that his Banquo's children will be king is the driving force behind many of Macbeth's later actions as he becomes obsessed with his legacy. That was a burp, I'm sorry. 
uh, as he com becomes obsessed with his legacy, like killing Banquo and going back to the witches for the second uh, second set of prediction predictions. Now I've got the hiccups. Then in Act One, Scene Three, they go back. Um, they don't go back. Ross and Angus enter and tell Macbeth that he is now the new Thane of Cawdor. Again, it kind of shows that um, um, that the Thane of Cawdor before was a traitor and now he is going to be a traitor. Um, and then the theme of the motive of clothes is introduced in Act 1, Scene 3 when they say, why do you dress me in borrowed robes? Um, and it also says, later on, Banquo says, new honours come upon him like our strange garments. So Banquo compares Macbeth's new titles to ill-fitting clothes. He holds them of the noble qualities a king should hold. And then even Macbeth uses this imagery earlier, which shows both Macbeth and Banquo realise that Macbeth was elevated above his station, a status not suited to him with his early thoughts of regicide. Then, uh, when Ross and Angus leave, Macbeth says the supernatural soliciting cannot be ill, cannot be good. So it's a first glimpse to his inner feelings. We know he has already become quite obsessed with the prophecies of the witches and is torn by the nature of the witches' news. Uh, then we're going to move on to Act 1, Scene 4. This is the King, Duncan, Lennox, Malcolm and Donalbane. This is basically where Duncan says that the next heir, heir to the throne will be his son. And um, he says this after saying to Macbeth, um, more is thy due than more can pay. Um, he also says, like, I will give you riches, the opportunity, you are welcome. Um, I have planted the seeds of great career for you. He's promising all these things. So in Macbeth's brain, he is thinking, oh yeah, I'm going to be king now. Uh, and he gets all excited. But then Duncan says, our eldest Malcolm, who we name here after the Prince of Cumberland. The Prince of Cumberland was the next in line to the throne. So by calling, by um, Duncan raising Macbeth's hopes just after he, well, the first set of prophecies have come true and Macbeth is expecting to be king, by saying that it's Malcolm, it lowers it kind of makes him impatient, Macbeth, and he calls for darkness as a result, and Macbeth says, stars hide your fires, let not light to my black and deep desires. So he's acknowledging his desires are deep and an indication of their intensity and strength over him. It's important to mask his ambition if he is to succeed in achieving him, and he calls on darkness to hide his actions, uh, to assist him in concealing his ambitious thoughts, and is already entertaining the thoughts of murder. Then Act 1, Scene 5 comes along, and this is when Lady Macbeth receives a... Oh, never mind. Act 1, Scene 4... Yeah, Act 1, Scene 5 is when Lady Macbeth receives a letter from her dearest partner of greatness, which is Macbeth. And it basically, he tells her everything that the witch has said. She's really happy. And then she reveals that she doesn't think that Macbeth will be able to do it on his own because she fears that he is too full of the milk of the human kindness. So Shakespeare demonstrates that Lady Macbeth has a lack of confidence in Macbeth that later caused Lady Macbeth to plan the murder of Duncan, suggesting Macbeth's compassionate nature might dull his ambition. There's a sense of control over her husband and it's already clear as she encourages her husband to return home so she can pay, pour my spirits in thine ear. Uh, almost immediately on hearing about the witch's prophecies, Lady Macbeth has already resolved to help her husband get what she thinks is rightfully his. And it's an example of Lady Macbeth using use of demasculinization to control Macbeth. She uses to manipulate him. She then uh, hears that by the servant, the king comes here tonight to the castle. And she is shocked and in disbelief and she's really happy after that. And then she says, the raven himself is horse that croaks the fatal entrance of Duncan. The raven is a symbol of death, so Shakespeare is foreshadowing Duncan's death. And it's also associated with loss and bad omens. So Shakespeare might be linking Lady Macbeth's plan specifically to the actions of the witches. Also it could be interpreted as that a raven is a symbol of doom, so it shows that the misfortunes that await for Lady Macbeth and Macbeth. Uh, and then once she hears that Macbeth is coming, uh, Duncan is coming to the castle, she gets fixed on that she's going to help Macbeth kill D Duncan. 
So she says, unsex me here. Now, loads of people misinterpret this and think that she's transgender or something, but it doesn't mean that. It's basically that women were typically believed to be gentle, soft and subservient. Because Lady Macbeth feels her husband has too many of these feminine qualities already, she's asking to be given more masculine qualities. She considers herself in charge, so she's trying to be like her husband, so she can act without guilt and remorse. Her concept of men are cruel and without remorse and violent. She also says, come to my woman's breast and take my milk for gall. She's seeking her milk to be replaced with poison. She wants to bring death where there should be life. Um, well, that's basically it for Act 1, Scene 5, is it? No, it's not. Then Macbeth enters and they made Lady Macbeth and Macbeth have this little exchange where Macbeth is like... Um, um, and basically, uh, Lady Macbeth tells, Macbeth says that Duncan is coming here tonight and then Lady Macbeth tries to kind of plant this image in Macbeth's mind that they will have to hide their true intentions, look like the innocent flower but be the serpent underneath to get what they want. But she doesn't really say that they're going to kill him yet. Macbeth says we will speak further and Lady Macbeth says leave all the rest to me. So she's taking charge and she's not like a stereotypical Elizabethan woman. Then we go into Act 1, Scene 6. There are hot boys and torches. Not torches, torches. Uh, this is basically when Duncan, Banquo, uh, everybody basically, all the king's men come to the castle. And Duncan and Banquo are talking about how the castle has a pleasant seat. Um, this, that this looks like a nice um, castle and they're talking about how nice the castle is and this is ironic as this is where Duncan is going to die and it's highlighting how he is foolishly optimistic. It shows how Duncan is taken by appearance, the castle may be attractive but behind the walls is a distorted truth which the Macbeth will fully exploit in order to pull their plans off. Um, but there is a hint of Duncan's death and foreshadowing as Banquo says the temple haunting martlet, martlets are restless birds which foreshadow his death. Then Lady Macbeth comes, Duncan praises uh, Lady Macbeth, saying, Honest hostess, thank us for your trouble. And then Lady Macbeth puts this, like, visage, which is called a mask. She's like, oh, at every point twice done and then done double. Um, against those honours deep and broad, wherein your majesty loads our house. So basically saying, everything we're doing for you, even if it is doubled and doubled again, is nothing compared to the honours you have brought to our family. She's speaking in hyperbole, she's being excessively sweet. Uh, and she's acting gracious and Macbeth isn't there because he's not good at hiding his emotions so that because Duncan says where's the thing of Cordor and she says he's not there um, the reason he's not there is because he can't put on a mask unlike Lady Macbeth at this point in the play and then uh, she basically leads him to his um, bedroom where he's gonna die and then Act 1 scene 7 comes in this is a little soliloquy uh, by Macbeth in here uh, and it's basically the one where it's if it were done when tis done then twere done if it could come quickly so this is where he is um, kind of coming to terms with killing the king but also he is worried about the consequences and um, he's scared of getting caught um, and he's really unsure of what he's meant to do. He's aware of his hamasha, that is his vaulting ambition, and he's self-aware of the flaw, and he's aware he's overstepping himself. He's aware of the role he's supposed to be playing. He's here in double trust, first as I'm his kinsman and his subject. He uses should as a modal verb when it says, who should against his murderer shut the door, which tells the audience that Macbeth is aware of his moral obligations, and yet he does not end up fulfilling him. Then, basically, um, Lady Macbeth enters and then Macbeth and Lady Macbeth have this kind of debate and Lady Macbeth is like, Macbeth is, we will proceed no further in this business. He decides not to kill Duncan. But Lady Macbeth is like, was a hope drunk? Why only you dressed yourself? What beast was it then? She manipulates Macbeth into saying, yes, we, you will kill him because she knows how to exploit his vulnerabilities. She uses um, manipulative tactics like emasculating him and making him feel more masculine and making him feel like he needs to prove his masculinity in order to 
because she makes him prove his masculinity by saying that if you were really a man, you would do what you sworn to do so. Um, and again, links masculinity to violence. Um, she asks a lot of questions. She questions his love for her, questions his masculinity, questions him as a soldier, calls him a coward. She knows exactly how to manipulate him. She's um, re-establishing his manhood, like saying you used to be a man. Um, when you just do it, then you were a man. And then she brings up this really violent image um, that she would dash the brains out of a baby if she had sworn to do so as he has sworn to do this. So she is spinning the statement to convince Macbeth um, and she is willing to sacrifice her maternal instincts. And she brings up this vulnerable image of a baby. And then Macbeth's like, if we should fail, because he's worried of um, getting caught. And then Lady Macbeth says, we fail, but screw your courage to sticky place. Um, so she's telling him to man up, encouraging him. She's commanding her husband to find his bravery and fearlessness, concluding that they will not fail. Again, she's convincing him. And then she tells Macbeth her plan to um, kill Macbeth in his sleep and then blame it on the guards. Uh, and then by the end of Act 1, Scene 7, Macbeth is settled and he is going to kill his king. He says, um, I am settled and bend up each corporal agent to this terrible feat. Away and mock the time with fairer show. False face must hide what the false heart does know. He starts talking in rhyming couplets, which suggests he's back in the witch's influence. The reason when Macbeth talks in rhyming couplets, couplets it shows us that he is... Um, under the witch's influence is because the witches are the only characters who speak in truncate pentameter, which is just rhyming the whole time. I am aware that we're almost in half an hour through it and we've already got into seven stages. So I'm gonna decide to put less um kind of quotations into it and just do it really quickly. So act two, scene four, is a scene between Banquo and Fleance. Banquo is unsettled because he has a sense of foreboding and he thinks something wrong is gonna happen. So he take, gives his sword to Fleance, which is Banquo's son. Macbeth enters and um, they have this kind of this conversation. And Banquo is a bit suspicious, you can tell, of Macbeth that he is so um, indulged in the prophecies. Then Banquo and Fleance exit and then Macbeth has a soliloquy again. The famous is this a dagger which I see before me, which is um, a powerful hallucination. And it's a manifestation of his ambitious ambition and his later guilt that he will feel he's at a highly emotional state and then he talks about um how he is not in control and he like feel like feel like feels like his senses are making fools of him uh then a bell rings signifies that his plan has been decided and then he says fear Hear it not, Duncan, for it is the knell that summons thee to heaven or hell. Again, he's talking in tricate, amateur, he's bewitched. Um, and then Act 2, Scene 2 happens. Lady Macbeth is found by herself. She is drunk. Um, and Lady Macbeth and Macbeth are getting ready to kill the king. Then Macbeth goes, kills kings, and then he comes back with bloody daggers. And then... They're really jumpy and panicked because every time they hear um, an owl cry or crickets cry, um, they're really like panicky. They're like, hark, who lies there? All that kind of stuff. So um, they're a bit jumpy. Then Lady Macbeth. Macbeth is obviously really startled and really scared he, because he could not say amen. He is um, talking about how he cannot sleep anymore, which is... Um, really unnatural in those times so all that kind of stuff and then lady macbeth realizes that macbeth still has the daggers in his hand so she calls him infirm of purpose and she goes and smears the blood on the guards and leaves the daggers there with them then uh, macbeth is riddled with guilt he says Will all great Neptune's oceans wash this blood from my hand? And Lady Macbeth is trying to convince him. She's saying a little water kiss lovers the deep. She's trying to reassure him. And then all through this, there's knocking all the way through. 
And this knocking is meant to be McDuff, it heightens the tension because they're moments away from getting caught. Then Act 2, Scene 3 has the porter in it. The porter is there to provide comic relief from all this tension um, and he does have a message. So what happens is he compares himself to be um, the guard at the gates of hell and he starts naming these professions and metaphors which are metaphors for the sins that Macbeth has committed. For example, there is a... Um, farmer that hanged himself on the expectation of plenty so that's a metaphor Macbeth ambition because he wanted something that's not his the throne and he has this like comic relief thing where he talks about not being able to get an erection and all that kind of stuff then act two scene three also has Macbeth and Lennox talking about how um, the night was unruly, Lennox says that chimneys are blown down, strange screams of death, um, woeful time, uh, earth was feverous and did shake. This is to reflect, this is a pathetic fallacy, reflecting the evil deeds that Macbeth has committed. Uh, because the king is killed, supernatural things are happening, and it's suggestive of the fact that the balance of, na of nature and natural order itself has been reversed by the murder of the king. Then Macduff comes and realises that the king is dead and he says, horror, 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 tongue nor heart can conceive nor name thee. So basically emphasises the unimaginable sight of um, the regicide of Duncan. Then Macduff calls it the most sacrilegious mm -hmm. murder because it's the chain of being which has been destroyed. Then Macduff, Macbeth pretends to be really sad, obviously, uh, and then Lady Macbeth wakes up. It's like, oh, such a hideous trumpet caused a parley. What's happened? Uh, Macduff tells him that the royal master's murdered. And, oh, this is a long scene. Macbeth is being really, really dramatic. He's like, the fountain of your blood has stopped. His silver skin laced with his golden blood. He's being really dramatic. Um, and, he t and he kind of outs himself then. He says, oh yes, I do repent me of my fury that I did kill him. He doesn't stop to think of the think of what he's saying in the heat of the moment. Uh, and then like the Macduff is like, why did you do that? And then Lady Macbeth um, faints. This could be because she is distracted or distracting them or overwhelming her. So she's either acting like a fragile woman or a manipulator and she um, kind of distracts attention from Macbeth. And then Lady Macbeth leaves uh, and then everyone exits except Malcolm and Dollarbane. Then Malcolm and Dollarbane talk about how they are going to run away, uh, one to Ireland, one to England, to, because they think that they will be safer that way, otherwise people are good, otherwise they are probably, the person who murdered Duncan will probably murder them, here's Macbeth. Um, then Ross, then it's the act two, scene four. This is, this is a scene between the old man and Ross. And again, they talk about what happened on the day that Duncan died. They say that, uh, that this was sort, uh, the, uh, I can't speak. The old man said that this sore night had trifled former knowings, which emphasizes the seriousness of Macbeth's deed. It's so bad that nothing is that significant compared to this old man's life. And they basically talk about all the bad things that happened that day. Then Ross asks Macduff if he's going to see the crowning of Macbeth. And Macduff says no. And then we kind of get the a hint that Macduff does not trust Macbeth. Uh, also in Act 2, Scene 4... Banquo, we hear that Banquo fears that Macbeth is um, being overcome with ambition and that Macbeth has done something terrible in order to obtain the crown which he has. And that's it for Act Four, scene, Act 3, Scene 1. In Act 3, Scene 2, Macbeth and Banquo talk and this is after he's been crowned king. And he basically says to Macbeth, uh, he basically says to Banquo that don't, like, come to our feast, don't miss it. And this is ironic because he knows fully well his friend won't be there as he would be dead. 
Um, it's cruel irony as he will not fail to be at the feast as his presence is felt in other many ways. For example, the ghost. Uh, and basically, Macbeth is having a supper there uh, to kind of like um, celebrate his crowning. So he he basically talks to Banco about coming there. Then um, he has, in Act 3, Scene 1, a soliloquy about how he's scared of Banquo because um, he his kings his children are a symbol of how he will not be in charge forever and that he will not have a legacy because he will not have kids um, and he's scared of Banquo uh, the qualities of Banquo are similar to what Macbeth used to be so he fears the likeness between them so he knows that he could do quite easily what he did to Duncan and he sees Banquo as a threat. So what he decides is to hire some murderers. Uh, he manipulates them, the murderers, into agreeing to kill Banquo and he uses the same tactics that Lady Macbeth used on him. He compares them to dogs, so uh, he is emasculating them, just how Lady Macbeth did to him and they question he questions his lo their loyalty just what Lady Macbeth did to him. So that's kind of like a uh, kind of like a reversing of roles. And then the scene ends with the murderers agreeing to kill Banquo. Then act three, scene one is Lady Macbeth asking the servant where Macbeth is. Uh, and it's clear that she is oblivious to his plans of murdering Banquo. So um, it shows that their relationship is deteriorating and they're not as strong as they were before. Then Lady Macbeth says, oh, get ready for the banquet. And then Macbeth's clearly, visibly um, scared of something. And she tries to tell him that, like, don't worry, it's fine. We have killed we have killed Duncan, it's all good. But Macbeth's like, we have scorched the snake, not killed it. So obviously he's still really obsessed with Banquo becoming king. Then Act 3, Scene 2, he is also, like, telling... Lady Macbeth or be instant of the knowledge dearest Chuck uh, and we see the roles reverse so he is now acting like Lady Macbeth and Macbeth is acting like him and then act three scene three happen and this is the act where we see that Banquo and Fleance get Banquo gets murdered but Fleance escapes and that's a key pivotal role because um Fle the whole point to kill Fleance the whole point was to kill Fleance because Fleance is the next in line to the throne and that's the whole thing he's stopping but he gets away so there's no point in anything then act three scene three um sorry act three scene four is where the banquet happens um and he talks basically Macbeth talks to the lords that are invited then the first murderer appears and the murderer tells Macbeth that um, Fleance escaped and with that he is really paranoid um, and the murderer tells him that they killed Banquo and he's, he was like thanks for that um, thank god that he is dead good thing that Banquo is dead even though that Banquo's murder was completely unnecessary because he even if Banquo did die that wouldn't change the prophecy of that he, he will not have a legacy So it shows how brutal he's become. Then as soon as he hears that Banquet is dead and Fluence escapes, the ghost of Banquet comes into the banquet and he starts acting really, really paranoid. All the gentlemen are like, oh, his highness is not well. Um, and Lady Macbeth is trying to kind of calm everyone down. She's like, um, Prithi, please sit down. Um, my lord is often thus and then she speaks aside to Macbeth are you a man uh, um, she's trying to manipulate him again with her questioning his masculinity but this time it's not working because Macbeth is has changed when she says are you a man he's like I and a bold one uh, she's trying to use the same kind of tactics but he is not listening because he's so preoccupied with the ghost and this carries on for quite a while and then she then the ghost exits and Macbeth is all back to normal. He says, and to our dear friend Banquo, whom we miss. Um, 
and then they, they like are normal again and then he sees the ghost again of Banquo and Macbeth has gone all weird all over again. Lady Macbeth tries to uh, calm everyone down and basically Ross is like, what sights my lord? They're trying to help him but then Lady Macbeth says, I pray you speak not, go at once. So they leave and everyone leaves but Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. Then Macbeth is basically trying to tell his wife, this is what I'm seeing, it's not false, I'm not making it up. And Lady Macbeth is really angry, she's like, what have you done? Um, and again, Macbeth is trying to convince her, and that is basically the end of Act 3, Scene 4. Act 3, Scene 5, we see the witches and Hecate. Hecate is is the goddess of witchcraft so she is in charge of the witches and she's also the goddess of crossroads which is interesting because here Macbeth is um, at crossroads he is um, making the decision between attempting to stop the cycle of bloodshed by just ignoring whatever the witches have said or to be consumed by it and here in this scene we hear Hecate talking to the first the witches and saying that um, they will meet Macbeth again to tell him the other prophecies basically. Then in act three, scene six, Lennox and the Lords have a conversation where they are talking about um, the situation in Scotland about how um, Duncan has died, Macbeth is now king, Fleance has escaped, um, and basically all the things that have happened so far. Then you get act four, scene one, uh, the witches are shown again, there's thunder again, um, highlighting the pathetic fallacy. Uh, and then the witches get um, make a spell, double, double, toil and trouble, all that kind of stuff. Then Macbeth enters and is like, answer me, tell me the um, what will happen now. Um, and this time Macbeth believes that the meeting is in his own terms and he achieves to, he aims to achieve one thing, which is control over his life. He asks... Um, Give me a second. He asks for more uh, prophecies. Then the witches tell him three prophecies. There's a, and these are called apparitions. So these are, um, and these apparitions are equivocations. They're half-truths. They're a truth within a lie. They show an armed head, which is considered to be Macbeth's head foreshadowing his own death. Then they show a bloody child and say that, um, for none of women born can harm Macbeth. Macbeth which evokes the audience memory. Um, and it is meant to be the bloody child, which is Macduff. He, was, he wasn't he was a woman born. He was ripped out of his mother's womb uh, by C-section. So um, he Macbeth, Macduff is the one who kills Macduff, Macbeth at the end. So it alludes to that. And the last one is a child crowned with a tree in his hands, which show that um, his deepest, Macbeth's deepest fears of not having a legacy is true. And the child crowned is Malcolm, and the tree in his hand is Burnham Wood. Then they say that no one will hurt him until Burnham Wood moves to Dunsinane, which Macbeth feels like, oh, that is impossible. But if you remember, at the end, the soldiers hold branches of Dunsinane and... Um, carry them to but oh, i can't speak hold branches from burnham wood and they carry it to dunsinane and then there's an image of eight kings with glass in their hands followed by banquo so it secures Macbeth's worst fear and all the crimes he has been doing has amounted to nothing because his baron scepter has been confirmed but then Macbeth is obviously really appalled he's like oh my god he is um scared now and then act four scene two is between lady macbeth um her son and ross so lady macbeth and Ro lady macduff sorry and her son have this really nice exchange it's witty it's quick-hearted it's nice and it's this tender moment between her son and lady macbeth lady macduff i keep saying lady macbeth and this is the scene where we see that um, Lady Macduff and her children get murdered because Macbeth has hired murderers to kill them. And this is a, 
act that is completely unnecessary. There was the his children, Lady Macduff's, Lady Macduff and um, Macduff's children had nothing to do with Macbeth. So it just shows the the lengths Macduff Macbeth has gone to now. Then in Act Four, Scene Three, Macduff and Malcolm have a talk about who's going to take over the throne from Macbeth because Macbeth is obviously a tyrant at this point. So Macduff decides to go to Malcolm in England or Ireland, I can't remember, and decides to try to convince him to come back to Scotland to take his rightful heir as a throne. But, but Malcolm is wary and is suspicious of Macduff as he doesn't know if Macduff is on Macbeth's side and is just there to take him back to Scotland so that Macbeth can kill him. So he starts this little plan of his. He starts making him sound even worse than Macbeth. Like, if he was king, then Macbeth would just look like an innocent lamb. So, he starts saying that he is very lustful, very greedy, all that kind of stuff. And um, the, basically the plan is, if Macduff says yes, it doesn't matter about all these terrible things, it doesn't matter that you're worse than Macbeth, you can still be king, then he knows that Macduff is only doing this. He knows that Macduff is only doing this, so um, he can be on, so he can be on Macbeth's good side. And he's not actually just trying to help Scotland. But if he says, no, I can't make you king because you're even worse, then he knows that M Macduff is true to his word. And that's exactly what Macduff does. He says, oh, Scotland, Scotland. Um, he says, fit to govern, no, not to live. Um, and then he starts saying, like, how could you be such a, uh, such a man, even though your dad was a sainted king? And the Queen spent most of her time praying. And then Malcolm reveals his plan, says that this was the first lie he's ever said. And then them to say, oh yeah, we're going to fight Macbeth together. Then Ross comes in and Macduff asks how is his wife and children. Now Ross beats around the bush because he doesn't want to... Um, he's trying to delay the news because he's daunted by the sheer enormity of the news he must deliver. Um, and he tries to like be ambiguous and then when he finally tells them that um, your wife and babes were savagely slaughtered um, he is shocked obviously and he's really sad um, and he's like um, he blames himself he says sinful Macduff they were all struck for thee he blames himself, he feels responsible because he left his wife and children all by themselves when this tyrant, Macbeth, was on the loose. Um, and then, basically, Malcolm's like, turn this grief into violence and like help me uh, overthrow Macbeth. And so, that's exactly what happens. Then Act 5, Scene 1 is... And then... Uh, Macduff vows to kill Macbeth. Then Act 5, Scene 1 is between the Doctor, Gentlewoman and Lady Macbeth. They see that Lady Macbeth is sleepwalking and the sleepwalking is because of her paranoia and guilt of what she has done. Um, and then Lady Macbeth speaks in fragmented, um, fragmented, she speaks in fragmented memories. She's flicking between the scenes. She flicks between the night of Duncan's murder to the banquet where Banquo comes alive, uh, not Banquo comes alive, Banquo's ghost, and then back to the the murder. Um, and it just shows her um, that she is unwell and she's confused, all that kind of stuff. Then, um, Act 5, Scene 2 is with Menteith Cat. Caithness, sorry, Angus and Lennox. Basically, it's talking about how they're going to meet near Burnham Wood and they're going to overthrow Macbeth. And this is where the scenes start getting really short and really fast-paced to reflect the tension that's building up of this battle crime and leading up to Macbeth's fate. Act 5, scene 3 is where Shakespeare presents Macbeth as frantically pacing around. Um, but he also has hubris because he's well aware He's not supported off, but he doesn't care because none of women born can harm him. So he's relying on the prophecies. Um, 
then he calls on Satan, not Satan, Satan, like the devil, but a servant Satan. But, but by calling the servant Satan, it sounds like he's calling for the devil and that it just likens him more to hell and his fate in hell. Um, and basically he asks for the news and that he learns that uh, 10,000 soldiers are surrounding his castle uh, and he's really angry about that. Then the doctor comes in and says that um, his wife, Lady Macbeth, is really ill. He's like, cure her of that. He misses the severity of the situation and downplays the disease because he's so preoccupied by the war. Um, and then Macbeth ends, he ends with, in Act 5, Scene 3, he's trying to convince himself. He says, I will not be afraid of death in vain till Burnham Forest comes to Dunsinane. He's trying to create this false sense of security based around the, the witches and their prophecies. Then Act 5, Scene 4, we go back to Malcolm and Macduff and that kind of side. Again, they talk about um, how they are almost near to the end. And this is when they say that they're going to tell every soldier to break off a branch and hold it in front of him. And then they can conceal them. So that basically, a uh, long story short, that is how Burnhamwood moves to Dunsinane because they have the branches. Then Act 5, Scene 5 goes back to Macbeth. At the, the beginning of Act 5, Act 5, Scene 5, we see a lot of shifts in mood between Macbeth. So first, he's in a defiant mood. He's relishing the apparent strength of the castle and he's delusional. He says, Our castle strength will laugh a siege to scorn. Hang out our banners. Then there's a cry of women and um, he starts kind of... Um, reminiscing and saying that he has always forgotten the taste of tears um, and there was a time where he would his senses would have called to hear a night shriek then satan comes in he, macbeth asks why was there crying and then the satan says the queen my lord is dead and then he has that famous speech tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeping this petty pace from day to day where he talks about the fragility of life and how he wishes he'd never made the decisions about how he um there's no meaning of life and that he's lost everything that was dear to him. Um, and then the messenger comes and says that Burnhamwood is moving to Dunsinane. Then Macbeth is really angry. He's like, if he speaks false upon the next tree, shall you hang alive till famine cling thee? He's frightened, so, it's, so he's violent to lash out on the servants. Um, and then he looks outside and Burnhamwood is moving to Dunsinane. He, he realises that the the prophecies that the witches have told him and the apparitions were equivocations because he says i pour in resolution and begin to doubt the equivocation of the fiend that lies like truth then act five scene six happens um and basically it's very small it's one little um paragraph but basically it's just showing that they are um that the moment of Macbeth's, Macbeth's demise is so nearly upon him and what is striking is the determination of these men, Malcolm, Seward and Macduff. Then Act 5, Scene 7. As you can tell, it's really fast-paced. Act 5, Scene 7, Macbeth comes. He's having feelings of claustrophobia because he says he's tied to a stake and he cannot fly. He's trapped in his castle, surrounded by the enemy. Um, and then he says, oh, yeah, but... Uh, what's he that was not born of woman? He attempts to keep hold of the witch's prophecies, even though he knows that apparitions were equivocations. He still is like his last hope. Um, and then this is a scene where young Seward comes in and tries to kill Macbeth, but he fails. Um, and he's like, thou was born of woman, but swords I smile. At weapons laugh to scorn, brandished by man, that's of a woman born. Again... He's talking of rhyming couplets, so he's under the witch's influence, and he knows one of the apparitions is a trick, but he still relies on it. Then Act 5, seven, Act five Scene 7, um, Malcolm and Seward learn that young Seward has died, and Seward is not sad, he's actually happy, because he says that... Um, oh, never mind, that's not this one. No, never mind, sorry, forget that. Act 5, Scene 7 is when Macduff and Mal... Macduff and... Oh no, I'm right. Wait, what? Sorry, no, I just spoke about Act 5, Scene 7. Sorry, guys, I'm confusing myself and you. And then Act 5, Scene 8 comes in, and this is a fight between Macbeth and Macduff. Macduff says, turn, hellhound, turn, which foreshadows Macbeth's fate in hell. He 
hellhounds are mythical creatures that guard the gates to hell so he's an agent of hell um and Macduff is basically they fight and then Macbeth dies um the last line that Macbeth says is um the last kind of speech he says is he's not going to surrender and he is um he is going to die like a man apparently um and then act five scene eight is when everyone asks is he dead and they are dead. and then act five scene eight is when everybody learns that Macbeth has died because Macduff enters in Macbeth's head so Macbeth has met the same fate as those he has slain before him then everyone's like hail king of scotland which is malcolm and malcolm makes a speech about um he's gonna try and restore order and he mirrors duncan's language to do with plants and growing because he says uh, what's more to do which would be planted newly with time um he says that Macbeth was a um a dead butcher and his fiend queen they talk about how they had snares of watchful tyranny um, and this savage but too simplistic imagery conveys the extent of Macbeth's crimes and he ends with a rhyming kind of rhyming couplets he says that cause he says that calls upon us by the grace of grace we will perform in measure time and place so thanks to all at once and to each one whom we invite to see us crowned as gone so the rhyming sounds like the end of a fairy tale and it alludes to the fact that Scotland would have prosperity from then on and that is Macbeth um kind of recapped in around an hour i actually thought this episode would be around like only a minute not a minute like 20 minutes but apparently not i did try and talk really fast i'm sorry it's just because i don't want this episode to go to an hour because that's a bit too long even though we're really close and thank you for listening i hope this did actually make a difference or did help at all Thank you for listening to GCSE Revision with Jazz by Jazz and I hope this episode helped you in any way, shape or form. We are officially done with the Macbeth series now and I will be moving on to some other um, subjects. If you have any suggestions or any um, subject you want me to help you out with, please, please, please go on um, email and email me. My email address is linked in the description or you can go to my website and there's also a little link there to Um, send me a message and I will be able to look at that I do check them every day so if there is anything you need uh, those are the best ways to reach me because I do check them quite often the only thing I will say is I will not do any revision on maths because I wouldn't know how to do that and also I don't like maths I really can't help you in that one but anything English science anything like that tell me I have made revision videos on science before so if you need anything like me going to a specific topic I do not mind at all anything else I have to say yes I hope this episode helps you in any way shape or form I'm not sure if I've said that before but I think I've already said that and um, have a good day or night wherever you are in the world. Bye!